All right, welcome back. How are we going to do tonight? Doing good? Doing good? Ready for a little Christmas in July afterwards tonight? Just think about this. Five months from right now, you'll have opened your presents. You'll be doing whatever, playing your game or putting together something, whatever. It'll be, it'll be great. Only five months away. I got corrected the, tonight. I thought it was six months. It's only five. So we gained a month. Hey, if you got your Bibles, turn to uh, Luke chapter 18. That's where we're going to be tonight. And uh, as you get there, I want to just, just a quick, we're not going to show hands, but you're going to turn to your, the, somebody sitting next to you when I tell you, so I want you to start thinking about this, what is the greatest superpower that you can have? What, what is that? If you could pick it, what would it be? All right? On the count of three, tell the person next to you what that is. One, two, three. Okay, all right, that's enough. We don't need a whole conversation or debate about it. All right. How many of you said flying? How many of you said flying? Flyers? We got a lot of flyers. How many of you said invisibility? All right. Here, here's, here's mine, and this one's actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you a superpower that as the older I get, the more I'm convinced that this is, this is the greatest superpower. And, it's, and here's the good news. It's actually a superpower that you can actually have in your actual real life. The older I get, the more I realize that the greatest superpower that we can actually have is self-awareness. It is the greatest superpower that we have. And my first job that I had when I was in my 20s, I was given the gift of self-awareness. And here's the thing about this gift and this power is that it is a painful process to arrive in that place. It is not fun. It is not fun. In my first job that I had, I was given the uh, role of being the supervisor um, at the ripe old age of 24. And that was a poor choice by my employer's uh, standards. That they should not have done that. Because um, I was 24 and I was uh, pretty confident, uh, pretty self-confident, borderline arrogant in the uh, ways that I did things. I had a lot of, hey, they gave me this job for a reason because, quite frankly, I'm awesome. That was my, I never said that out loud, of course not. I would not say that. I'm too savvy of a Christian to actually say that out loud. But that was absolutely the thought of my heart and the thought of my mind. And so what that looked like was I, I was not um, a good listener. I was not uh, kind. I was pretty much a bulldozer. And if it wasn't my idea, it was a bad idea. And so for about a year and a half into this new position that I had, um, I thought things were going great. I thought, man, we are fantastic. Our, our numbers are up. Our engagement's up. Um, this, is, this is awesome. And then my boss said, hey, uh, when the next time you're in Dallas, stop by, I want to talk with you. I was like, fantastic. This is going to be like my annual review. It's going to be great. Um, and I sat down, and it was not great. He walked me through about a one-hour conversation where he gave me the gift of self-awareness. And that gift that he gave me was that you're a terrible boss, you're being a jerk to your employees, and that you're an arrogant guy. I was like, whoa. Never in my life had anyone said anything like that to me. Up until that point in my life, I had a pretty, pretty easy road. Everything that I had tried, it went pretty well. I mean, there was a couple bumps in the road, but for the most part, up until that, I was sitting at a Panera 
in Dallas, Texas, and my life was shattered. And I drove three hours home, and for the first time in my life, I wept. My pride and my ego, my job, my reputation in that, in that ministry, like every terrible scenario was going through my head. I'm gonna lose my job, I'm gonna lose my reputation, everybody's gonna know who I really am, all these things. And I came back to Oklahoma City humbled, like I had never dreamt or wanted to ever be humble before. I wanted to quit my job, I wanted to move home and start my life over. And luckily I had a mentor in my life that said, Andy, you have been given a wonderful gift. The gift of self-awareness. And it sucked. There was not one piece of me that said, I wanna go live that over. But now I can tell you there's not one piece of me that wishes that didn't happen. I am so grateful that happened. I did not want it to happen, but I'm grateful that it did. Because I started that position as a 20-something, early 20-something, as a self-righteous guy. And I left that season in that conversation a self-aware guy. And so what I wanna talk about tonight from Luke 18 is we're gonna wrap up this series, Friend of Sinners. And we're gonna look at the self-righteous sinner and we're gonna look at the self-aware sinner. Because if you think about it, what tonight is, is we're gonna, it's like a microcosm of every week that we've talked about in this entire series. You can find Zacchaeus in the story tonight. You can find Peter in the story tonight. You can find the thief on the cross in the story tonight. And you can find the woman that Taylor talked about last week in this story. And so this story is one that I've been thinking about for a month. And so, of course, it's been the most difficult message to put together. But let me read, starting, I think it's in verse 9. Is that right? Yeah, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Parable just means a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, what Jesus is doing, and here's the cool thing, is every story we look at, and every time Jesus interacts with somebody, it's pretty cool to know that he's interacting with a sinner. And so every time we see an interaction with Jesus and a person, we can learn about Jesus, the friend of sinners. But here, Jesus gives us a scenario, a parable. 
that in the coming verses of Luke 18, he's actually going to play out in real life. He's gonna get, he gives the parable, and then he actually walks into a, a situation that he just described. And so tonight, we're gonna talk almost about the entire chapter of Luke 18 at, in different moments. But what we see is Jesus speaking to ver- a very specific audience. The audience is to some who were confident of their own righteousness. This guy. Because believe me, when I was in high school, when I was in college, and when I was in my early young adult years, I was this guy. I was incredibly confident because you know what? I was really good at following the rules. I was really, really, really good at it. And I was really, I was probably even better at hiding when I broke the rules. And I just let it hide in my life and no one knew about it. They only knew the righteousness. Here's the cool thing is that word confident. To some who were confident, that word could also be uh, translated as persuaded. So think about this, to some who were persuaded of their own righteousness. We can do that, can't we? We can persuade ourselves into believing that, man, I'm, I'm not that bad. I, I'm not as bad as that person. Not, not, man, I'm not that mess. That's the world I lived in. So he's speaking to a very specific audience, those who were self-righteous. And to the audience that Jesus was teaching to, at first glance in this story, the villain and the hero are obvious. And we've talked about this almost every week at some level, like you got the tax collector and the Pharisee. And this is a spectrum. The Pharisee would have been known as, this is like the ideal person of faith. You can't get any better behaved than the Pharisee. And then the tax collector was on the other end of the spectrum. And see here, the easy thing to do in this story is like, well, I'm not that and I'm not that, so this story doesn't connect with me. It absolutely does. The reason Jesus does that is because he includes everyone in between too. He doesn't wanna leave anybody out, so he picks the best of the best and the worst of the worst as his example. And so we see two men doing the same thing. They're going to the temple to pray, but they do two very, very different prayers. And Jesus lifts up one and not the other. So let's dive back in here. Let's take a look at this incredible parable that we see then play out in real life. Let's come back to verse nine. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, they despised them. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and then the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give 10th of what I get. So my first point tonight is that the self-righteous are desperately building a resume. That's what the self-righteous do. It's not an actual resume that you type out. It's just a resume that you know in here and in here. You know, you're just like, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm good. The Pharisee stood in his own place of prominence to pray. His prayer was a prayer of self-congratulatory celebration of himself. It was as if God wasn't even in the picture 
right? Four times he says, God, I thank you that I am not, I fast and I give. Thank you that I'm not like them. Like, have you ever met that friend that's like the one-upper? Everywhere you go, they've gone somewhere better. Every time you eat something great, they're like, oh, I've, I've been to this other place that's even better than that. I, I've known multiple people in my life. I call them the me monster, right? Because whatever you bring up, they make it about me. And that's what this Pharisee is doing. He's coming to the temple to pray. Good for him. He's coming before the Lord to pray. But he makes it about himself. He fasted twice a week. Did you know they were only required to fast one day a year? This dude's doing twice a week. There were only parts of their income that they were required to pay tithe on. But he said, I tithe on all that I get. He's the ultimate, I'm a good person. My good behavior will save me. My resume, look, here it is. This is look at all the things I've done. You see, the Pharisee spent his prayer praising himself. He thanked God that he was a generous, fulfilled, and he fulfilled his religious obligations. That he was not like these other people. You see, what he, here's, here's the misplaced measurement, though. This is where he makes his mistake. He used other people as his standard of righteousness. He looked at everybody else and made his judgment. And since he surpassed all of them, he celebrated his own virtue. Therefore, since he was better than everyone else, he assumed that God must be pleased with him. To be blunt, this Pharisee worshiped his own goodness and his own behavior. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if I've ever prayed a prayer like this. Like, thank God, I'm so good. I've never actually said those words or thought those words but the attitude of my heart and the posture of my heart has absolutely lived this life. And most of the time in my life, it's not even an overt cockiness. It's an apathy of, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not as bad as those people. I'm good. And so it doesn't look like arrogance. It looks like apathy. The self-righteousness that is most familiar to most of us, I would bet, is apathy. It's not a big deal. I'm good, I'll be okay. I'm not as bad as that, and I don't do that, I'm good. And then we see this actual parable play out in actual life in just a few verses. Look at uh, Luke 18, 18. We get to the rich young ruler. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, said Jesus. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Oh, and here's what he says. The rich young ruler says, I've done all of those things. Here's my resume. I've done all of those things since I was young. And then Jesus says, well, you lack one thing. He said, sell all of you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You see, it's at the feet of Jesus where our resume goes to die. Jesus did not care about the resume. He cared about his heart and his heart 
was worshiping his goodness and his money. You can build a resume. You go for it. But there will be a day where you realize your resume falls woefully short. And the rich young ruler does not have a good ending. It says, after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. You see, Jesus went after what was most important to him, his resume and his riches, and he could not give them up. He left extremely sad. And so we see the self-righteous sinner ends up outside of the company of Jesus. He is left out. He walks away, he leaves Jesus. But then Jesus turns to the next person, the tax collector, look at verse 13. He says, but the tax collector stood at a distance, far off. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a stark difference in these two prayers. One is super wordy, right? Oh God, I thank you that I am not like this guy. I am not this, I am not that, I am not this. Oh, and I give, I give my tithe on everything that I get and I fast twice a week. Lots of words. That's what resumes do, don't we? You've written a resume before. We add words. We look up that word and be like, what else, what other words could I add to add more words to describe that word? But not the tax collector. He simply says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. And so my second point tonight is that the self-aware sinner is desperately wanting mercy. The self-aware are desperately wanting mercy. You see, there's a huge contrast here. The Pharisee stood close, the tax collector stood far away from the holy place in the temple. He was self-aware, he knew who he was. He knew what he had done. He knew what people thought of him because of what he had done. He did not dare lift up his eyes and forget about his hands. He didn't know what to do. Instead of lifting his hands, he beat his breast. Not in a, in a self-violent way, but in a show of grief and sorrow over his sin. He didn't congratulate himself. He brought himself low. He was self-aware. His prayer was not congratulatory, but instead it was a prayer of confession. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's just confessing, God, this is who I am. This is what I've done. You know everything about me. This is the real sinner prayer. This is the real sinner's prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus lifts up and says, this guy, he's got it. He figured it out. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He couldn't muster up any other words because sometimes it is a painful thing 
to become self-aware of who we are before a holy God. You see, the tax collector used God as his standard for the measurement of righteousness. The Pharisee measured himself against other people. The tax collector was measuring himself before a holy God that has no evil in him. There is no evil, no sin, nothing, just goodness. And it was that realization that brings him to a place that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He realized his only option was to throw himself on the mercy of God for forgiveness and justification, meaning he needed to be made right. He wanted to be made right, but he had nothing to give. The Pharisee thought, I got everything to give. My goodness, my tithe, my fasting. I got, man, God, you're lucky to have me on your team. But the tax collector realized his only option was to throw himself at the mercy of God. But here's the good news. In Titus 3, verse four and five, it says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our self-righteousness and the things that we had done, but he saved us because of his mercy. His mercy. The very thing that the tax collector needed, the very thing that he wanted is the very thing that God gives. It's his mercy. And then again, just like the rich young ruler, we see in Luke 18, verse 35, the next real life scenario of this parable. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging Hearing the crowd passing by, he inquired, because he's blind, what was happening. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, they told him. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Same exact thing. Then those in front of him, I love this, those in front of him said, be quiet, shut up. But he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. When he came closer, he asked, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I wanna see. Jesus told him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Instantly he could see, and he began to follow him, glorifying God, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You see, the self-righteous Pharisee and the rich young ruler left the presence of Jesus sad because their resume had been shredded. But the tax collector and the blind man, when they interacted with Jesus because they knew their need, left with joy and praise and celebration and everyone celebrated with them. You see, the self-aware sinner doesn't live sad. The self-aware sinner is healed and exuberant and praises God because they have received the mercy that they know they need. It's like when you get sick and you finally get the very care that you need. 
And then lastly, Jesus now commentates on what he just shared. In verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified. And that justified means they were made right. Another way to say this, I love this definition. He was made as he ought to be. It says, he went home as he ought to be before the Lord. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so what Jesus does here is he exalts the tax collector because of his faith and his humility before the Lord. So my third point tonight is that humility always wins. Humility always wins, and conversely is also true. Pride always loses. Always. You see, the truth of the matter is, is we live our lives in full view of God. He knows everything about us. He knows where we've been. He knows what we've looked at. He knows what we've done. He knows what we've thought. He knows our life is in full view of him. And he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to set the captives, those who are enslaved to sin, I have come to set them free. Jesus didn't come to catch you. He came to set you free. And God's kingdom is the exact opposite of humanity's kingdom. Because our world and our culture is all about me. Me, me, me. I'm proud and my pride drives my life. I will be the king of my own castle. I will do what I want to do, and that will be enough. I'm good enough. That's the message of our world, the message of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ is that we have nothing to give, and Jesus has done it for us. He has invited us in, of our own, none of our own merit, but on his merit, we are invited in. And there's two outcomes. If you think back, if you've been here this whole series, if you think back to each message that we've given in this series, the friend of sinners, there's only two outcomes. In every single interaction, there's two outcomes. Those who are self-righteous find themselves on the outside of God's kingdom. And those who are self-aware and humble find themselves brought near inside the kingdom of God. Our pride is what keeps us away. It's our humility that brings us near. Think about it, Zacchaeus, he interacts with Jesus and leaves transformed. Peter finds Jesus and he leaves restored. The thief on the cross is with Jesus in paradise. The woman is found forgiven. The tax collector is justified. The blind man is healed and the prodigal son is brought back and welcomed back. But the crowd of Zacchaeus is left judging and frustrated. The other thief on the cross is not with Jesus in paradise. The Pharisee Simon who is judging the woman is not forgiven. The Pharisee who is despising the tax collector is left judging and angry. The rich young ruler is left leaving Jesus when the blind man is healed. 
and the older brother and the story of the prodigal son is on the outside of the party and the prodigal son is in the party enjoying the fellowship with the father. I'm just reminded of Ephesians 2.13 where Paul writes this, but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The tax collector, when he came to the temple, he stood far away. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he is the one who was made justified, made right before God. He was brought near because humility always wins. And so you and I have a choice each and every day. You have a choice tonight. You have a choice to exalt yourself knowing that Jesus says when you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And believe me, going back to my story of my first job, it is way better to humble yourself than someone else to humble you. It is a terrible, terrible feeling. I don't like to become self-aware that way. What I would rather do is just between me and the Lord become self-aware of who I am. And so you can exalt yourself and what your life and your faith will look like is try harder, do more, better. And the standard will always be farther off than you want. You exalt yourself you let your self-righteousness and your do-goodness be the thing that you're chasing and you will always be chasing. Or we can choose to humble ourselves before the Lord like the tax collector and have an attitude of humility that says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I will give you mercy. You are justified. So how do we humble ourselves? I just came up with a short list of how we humble ourselves. The first thing is to confess God, to confess to God. Just like the tax collector, confess, this is who I am, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And then we confess to one another. James 5, 16 tells us that. Guys, there's nothing that will make us more humble than regularly having a rhythm of confession in our life. And this is the thing that I think the American church we've gotten away from. Is, is we, we, just, we just talk about God's grace and his mercy until we're blue in the face. But we never stop to acknowledge the necessity of confession. That we are to confess our sins to him who is faithful and just. To forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess to God and we confess to others. Once you do that, you will be humbled. And then we submit to the authority of Christ in our life. That's, that requires humility, is to submit our life to the authority of Christ. Another way to humble ourselves is to choose to serve others, to be quick to forgive as God has forgiven us. A way to humble ourselves is to receive that correction with grace. When someone brings something to us and says, hey, I need to give you a correction, we receive it with grace instead of with a hard heart of like, who do you think you are to tell me that? We treat pride like the cancer that it is. In James, the brother of Jesus says, 
God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride is the cancer of our soul. And lastly, we cultivate gratitude instead of grumbling. And so what do we do with this tonight? You know, we always have 120 seconds. I wanna give you three things. We're gonna leave them on the screen during 120 seconds. And, and it's simply this. The so what is humble yourself before God. What would it look like for you to start and end every day with this prayer? With this sinner's prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, today. Have mercy on me, God. It rightly aligns who we are before God. And it puts our mind and our heart in a posture of humility as we start our day and as we end our day. Secondly, step into confessing to God and to one another. I know this is a terrifying idea. Believe me, even at my age, been a Christian my whole life, every time I think of confession, the thought of like, ah, it's not that big a deal. You don't need to talk about this time. Like, you, you, you'd be okay. Just move, move on. Keep calm and carry on, right? But there's no greater freedom than confession. There's no greater freedom. It ushers in that superpower of self-awareness, of knowing who I am and who God is, and that he offers you forgiveness, and he offers you a cleansing of that unrighteousness. And to be fully known by another human being is a wonderful gift. That burden that we carry, that we so carefully craft and hide from, from public view is brought out to the light. And when it's brought to the light, that's where it goes to die. It's in the dark that things grow. And I just wanna encourage you from my own personal experience Lean into confession, both with God and to one another. And then thirdly, submit your life to Christ daily. Let him sit on the throne of your life. Get off the, you, you, you see, the throne of your life is a single seater. There is no co-piloting in the Christian life. He's either king of your life or you are. And what it looks like to humble ourselves before the Lord is to say, God, you are king. You sit on the throne of my life. You guide my steps. You lead my path. And so here's what I wanna do as we go into 120 seconds. I wanna give you some space to individually, right here in your seats, humbly come before the Lord like the tax collector did. And in your own way, and maybe in your own words, say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And then tell him, confess that to him. Right there where you sit. Confess your sin to the Lord, for he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. So do it. Bring it to him. Name it and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then at the end of the 120 seconds, before we sing one more song of worship, we're gonna do something, I don't know if you've ever done this, we're gonna do a corporate prayer of confession. I'm gonna come back up, 
gonna ask you to stand and then we're gonna read the words in this prayer on the screen together as we confess to the Lord as a corporate body of believers. Let me pray and then we'll go into this time. In your son's name, God, we, we just, in your son's name, we bring these things before you. In the name of Jesus, we humbly come before you. Not with the resume, not with achievements or awards or accolades. We just come before you humbled. Because God, you know everything about us. You see everything that we do and think. You know everything that we've done. And so Lord, I ask that you would be with us as we step into this moment of just personal confession with you. That you would have mercy on us.